0: It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Lockdown Viewing with Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. That's me. And for the next 20 minutes or more, I'll be talking about movies while providing some recommendations for what to watch and where to watch them. Today, I'll be discussing the Netflix movie, The Meyerowitz Stories, and also a documentary entitled The Palace of Silence, which can be found on the library streaming service Canopy and also on YouTube. Written and directed by Noah Bombeck, The Meyerowitz Stories was released on Netflix in 2017. Baumbeck has made many movies over the last 20 years, such as The Squid and the Whale, Margot at the Wedding, Greenberg, Francis Ha, and the more recent Marriage Story. And these are all movies about unhappy, generally speaking, self-obsessed, and often failing at life characters. I mean, Baumbeck specializes in a kind of painful, squirming-inducing humor centered on the fractured lives of people that we in the audience may have difficulty finding sympathetic. To this extent, Baumbach's movies, including the Meyerowitz stories, remind me a lot of uh, Larry David's TV show, HBO show, Curb Your Enthusiasm. But with a dramatic structure rather than a sitcom one. And in Bombeck, usually there's a great deal more pathos to go along with the pain. In the Meyerwood stories, um, we have a what's really a dysfunctional family comedy drama, a kind of an ensemble piece about the complicated relationship between three siblings played by Adam Sandler, Ben Stiller, and Elizabeth Marvel. And the relationship with their strong-willed father, a somewhat eccentric New York sculptor named Harold. And he's played by Dustin Hoffman. So there are a lot of big names in this movie, which is not a typically um, Hollywood venture in any other regard. Adam Sandler plays Danny, the divorced son and failed musician who has devoted his life to raising his daughter, Eliza, played by Grace Van Patten. When Eliza heads off to college, Danny is left trying to figure out who he is. His brother Matthew is played by Ben Stiller, a mega successful business manager, who's just in from Los Angeles. The third Meyerwitz sibling is daughter Jean, and she is played most excellently by Elizabeth Marvel as a kind of a wallflower who's basically ignored by everyone until, in a later scene in the movie, she reveals a traumatic secret that's been hidden for years. Now, this isn't so much a story-based movie, but rather a, a character-centered one, an ensemble piece, as I've called it in the context of a complicated set of family dynamics. Also included in the impressive cast are Emma Thompson as Harold's current wife and Candace Bergen as an ex-wife who knows the old artist all too well. Judge Hurt Judge excuse me, Jud Hirsch also makes an appearance as Harold's best friend and rather more successful rival in the arts world in New York. The entire family dynamic resembles what I know of Baumbach's own background to some extent, so his films are really a little bit autobiographical, including Marriage Story, his Oscar uh, nominated for Best Picture, uh, dramatic work from about a year ago. Um, it also has a lot of autobiographical content in it. Bombek grew up in Brooklyn. His father was a writer with an academic and artistic background, and this is really well demonstrated in the movie, um, The Squid and the Whale from 2005, uh, while his mother was a film critic at The Village Voice, who also wrote fiction. But mother and father uh, divorced during uh, Bombek's adolescence, and this is a frequent uh, subtext in most of his movies. Now, although highly secular, his parents um, were of both a Jewish and Protestant Christian background. And like the siblings in this movie, um, Bombeck also had um, three brothers and sisters. And like the Ben Stiller character, two of them are from a previous marriage of his father's. So all in all, a rather complicated but nevertheless quite stimulating family background. And this movie is as moving, I think, as it is often funny. Moments of true connection are few among the family members. And so when they happen, they do so with a kind of poignancy that may, to some extent, remind us of our own relationships with family members um, in our own lives. Now, there's another close comparison to the work of Noah Bombeck. I mentioned earlier Larry David, um, who... um, in addition to his great TV show, Curb Your Enthusiasm, of course, who was one of the two creators, uh, along with Seinfeld himself, of the great Seinfeld uh, sitcom from the 1990s. But another close comparison to the work of Noah Baumbach is that of Woody Allen, um, who often made smart, literate, dysfunctional family dramas set in the creative upper-middle-class world of Manhattan. A world that, as with Larry David and as with Noah Bombeck, is intense, insecure, and quite self-absorbed. Though in Bombeck, he's not asking you to like the characters, but rather sit back and enjoy their foibles. I think that's also true of Larry David, perhaps not so much of uh, Woody Allen himself. Now, in the Meyerwood stories, the principal irony is that the Dustin Hoffman character is so opinionated, but has really quite little perspective on his own life or understanding of his children. Yes, the characters are often irritating, but it, in, I think it's in that irritation that we, we, we find them so funny. We kind of keep them at arm's length. Uh, while recognizing something of ourselves and perhaps something of those we know in them. And to that extent, I think we can not only laugh at them, but laugh at ourselves. And to that extent, this film is really quite human, and that's something we don't really get to see much in contemporary filmmaking these days. Recognizably human characters, I mean. In Noah Baumbach movies, characters don't always know what they think and, and express themselves that way. Whereas in most movies, main characters almost always express themselves fluently and in a highly articulate manner, like in an Aaron Sorkin movie, for example, or in an exaggerated, highly theatrical way, like in a Quentin Tarantino movie. But in Bomback, a lot of the dialogue is speculative. Like we're listening to characters work out what they are thinking or trying to say. While at other times, characters speak at cross-purposes. Like the other person that they're speaking to isn't really there. Almost as if they're carrying on a dialogue with themselves. And of course... There's a lot of humor to be derived from that. A failure to communicate between characters is fundamental to the misunderstandings between siblings and with their father in the Meyerwood stories. But this is also a theme that uh, reoccurs throughout the work of Noah Bombeck, whose dialogue frequently shows us characters who miss the mark more often than hitting it good intentions may be present, but his characters are so full of their own insecurities that they often sabotage any well-meaning effort to connect with others. Then there's the way characters cut people off when speaking with them and attempt to finish their sentences, which is a, a way of attempting to exert dominance, I think. I like how the overlapping dialogue is realistic. The way People talk over each other, but this can perhaps be alienating for some audiences. The secondary presence of actresses Emma Thompson and Candace Bergen, I think, also make it impossible to overlook how much more thinly drawn the movie's female characters are than their male counterparts, or rather in contrast to their male counterparts. Film critic Chloe Lazote in Screen Slate has written, and I quote her here, although they're given space to express bottled-up remorse, the monologues of Baumbach's female characters often function as compressed exposition, allowing for a quick pivot back to repressed masculine hang-ups. Tellingly, Elizabeth Marvel's more introverted sibling doesn't get a full-chapter heading like her two brothers. She gets rather a parenthetical. So I think it's disappointing that any members of the ensemble get lost in a film so overwhelmingly eloquent about family dynamics. But that may reinforce Momback's point above all. The stories we tell reflect our own interests and perspectives. The most understated performance in the film is definitely that of Elizabeth Marvel's portrayal of Jean, a solitary, a most solitary woman who internalizes her frustrations to the point of seeming invisible to those around her, at least until she reveals a story about the predatory behavior of one of her father's colleagues when she was much younger. One of the things I particularly like about the Meyerowitz stories and something you don't often see in the movies is a realistic um, conception in the hospital scenes, which I think convey quite well what it's like to be in a hospital with, in a hospital with an elderly parent who is a patient there. It's a really great presentation, I think, of the personal coming up against the institutional. You know, being afraid, vulnerable, and so wanting to believe that staff know what they are doing and that they really care and are acting in your best interests. I mean, that's just something you grasp at. You want to believe. You need to believe it. And that's really well demonstrated in this film among the three siblings who are present in the hospital um, to help care for their hospitalized father. Analogous to this, I think, is the feelings on the part of the siblings that maybe their father did not always act in this way with each of them, that they rather see themselves as kind of bit parts in the story of his life. And certainly there's a kind of resentment that comes through um, regarding that feeling that each of the siblings has. But this is also a movie about everyday frustrations, like finding a parking spot, (laughs) for example. Um, So on one hand... It's, it's quite larger than life. We have these larger-than-life Hollywood actors, uh, very well-known stage presence. Um, uh, but uh, on the other hand, they're in these very everyday situations, which I help, think helps make this movie especially so interesting, so fascinating, so effective, both dramatic and funny, and certainly from my point of view, a must-see viewing experience. That's The Meyerowitz Stories, available to watch on Netflix. All right, the second movie I'd like to recommend today is a rather more modest, little-known, but nevertheless fascinating documentary about the history of a particular small long-time movie theater in Los Angeles, that played only silent movies, from classics to rare finds, all from the era of Hollywood filmmaking, in the era before the advent of recorded sound. So, from about 1929. This movie is entitled The Palace of Silence. Silence spelled S-I-L-E. N-T-S. But clearly there's a play on words here with the word silence. S-I-L-E-N-C-E. Now, the great silent movies um, were never entirely silent. They did not have recorded dialogue. They did not have a recorded soundtrack. But nevertheless, audiences, theater audiences in those days and watching uh, so-called silent movies always would have had um, piano and often orchestral live piano and live orcestor- orchestral, excuse me, accompaniment while watching um, the movie, and um, that happened. In that, that was a that was a, a typical occurrence in this um, retrospective silent movie theater in Los Angeles, which would uh, have its own. Piano live piano accompaniment playing along to the film to perhaps no more than a hundred uh, uh, people in the audience. In fact, this is something that the Cinematheque Quebecoise used to do downtown on Mesa Every Friday, they would play a silent movie but would have um, live piano accompaniment, uh, largely improvised, I would think, for those in attendance to watch the movie, and it was, it was really quite an experience to watch these old silent films with, um, with such live accompaniment. The documentary, The Palace of Silence, walks us through the silent movie theater's foundation in the early 1940s by one John Hampton and his wife. And what Hampton was able to build was an enviable collection of important movies that had been all but abandoned by the Hollywood studios which had made them. What most people don't realize today is that barely half the movies made even before the year 1950 no longer exist at all in any form. They just are gone. And it's really only thanks to the early efforts of collectors and enthusiasts like John Hampton that so much of what we still have today survives at all. From this very important era in filmmaking, not only in, I mean important, um, not only um, for their uh, individual artistic worth, but um, for the formative influence that those films have had in shaping the 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 both the art and form of filmmaking itself in subsequent decades. Now, while that in and of itself might only be of interest to hardcore film aficionados like myself. Happily, there is mystery, plentiful, colorful, and eccentric characters, and even an actual homicide event involving one longtime owner of the theater that became a feature episode on America's Most Wanted television show in the 1990s. So there's really a lot going on. Um, in this movie it's not simply for one's own academic um, pleasure regarding the history of silent uh, films itself it's really a, a, at least i found it to be quite a briskly paced um documentary that covers a lot of ground in its really quite short running time of only about 70 minutes so this film certainly doesn't wear out its welcome and we get to know the the colorful cast of characters who manage to keep the theater going in some form or another over several decades and uh, you know which includes your run of the mill money issues to other much more odd events in, including the sometimes black market acquisition of silent movies. <laughs> Um, certain lurid scandals, uh, in addition to the murder I mentioned earlier. And along the way, several film buffs, historians, former employees, and a Los Angeles Times film critic are interviewed, among other Angelinos. Now, having long been involved in small-time movie exhibition myself, uh, where it is often a labor of love, including at the library, of course, with our own uh, film presentations. I found this documentary to be thoroughly fascinating, especially regarding its glimpse into a small subculture, this small subculture of silent movie fanatics who themselves are a kind of precursor to the more widespread fan culture of today that surrounds any number of pop culture phenomena, you know, from Star Trek to the, uh, to the Marvel movies. Anyway, that's the documentary, The Palace of Silence, available to view both on the Canopy streaming service at the library and also on YouTube. Okay, that's all for now, folks. I hope you've enjoyed this and will join me next time for more movie talk. You've been listening to Lockdown Viewing with Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at codestluke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page, or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message. All the best, happy viewing, and bye-bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Code St. Luke podcast today. We launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in March 2020. The idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation and the library into your homes using Zoom, telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the City of Code St. Luke, visit codesaintluke.org. Have a great day.